Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Early bird discount for NDC Porto ends February 1st. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Dan Roth is here. I, I just have to say that you know right away because you want to know that you're listening to the right show. Yeah. Uh, Dan Roth is here. And Not that we ever be- mix these things up. We no. never make any mistakes. Ever. We never make any I mean, mistakes. We publish all things on time. I don't even know why I said that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right. well, anyway, Seven, seventeen hundred and eighty of these flipping things. You think we might have something figured out by now? Yeah, that's right. I'm not. I'm not even sure. We may have screwed up one show, two, three, four. Yeah. We've five, made six, every mistake shows, imaginable. That's what happens when you keep doing something. Nine shows. All right. Well, whatever. Uh, right. Roll the crazy music because I have something I'm sure Dan knows about, and uh, so Dan, you can chime in anytime. With this, uh, roll the music. All right, man, what do you got? Erlingus. Elringus. 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 Elringus? What's an Elringus? E-L-R-I-N-G-U-S. Elringus. It's on GitHub. Okay. And uh, they have a thing called .NETJS. Hmm. And .NET JS is dedicated to providing user-friendly workflow for consuming .NET C-sharp programs and libraries in any JavaScript environment, be it web browsers, Node.js, or custom-restricted spaces like web extensions for VS Code. Wow. Did you know about this, Dan? I, I did not know about this. No, that's, wow. that's very interesting. Wow, wow, cool. Yeah, I just well, learned about this. And it just and essentially think of it like C sharp from JavaScript anywhere. Do they just call into like like cross process into a .NET uh, process? Is that what they do, or are they hosting .NET somehow separate uh, themselves? Well, they have a JavaScript library .NET runtime that consumes compiled C sharp assemblies and .NET runtime WebAssembly module to provide C sharp interoperability layer in JavaScript. It's environment agnostic. It doesn't depend on platform-specific APIs like browser DOM or node modules. It can be consumed as common JS or ECMAScript modules uh, or imported via script tags in browsers. That is fascinating. <laughs> no, yeah. I've never heard of that. I thought I knew of all the .NET JavaScript thingies. There was a period of time where I was uh, hunting around for them. Admittedly, this looks very new. This is an individual... Yes. Contributor, right? This is a a, a a person named Artyom, and that they Al Ringus is his pseudonym, and a regular contributor to open source. No two ways about it. A busy, busy developer. Mm. But I, I think it's two weeks old as the time of this recording, which is the end of November. Right? Yeah, we're publishing this late in December, but like it's smoking new. Fourteen commits. Yeah, like what you know, one person. So. And then there's a uh, corresponding NuGet C Sharp package .NETJS that provides JavaScript interop uh, in C Sharp and packs project output into a single file JavaScript library via an MS build task. And the packed library uses embedded assemblies to initialize the .NET runtime library and can optionally emit declarations and type definitions to bootstrap the interop. It's pretty genius, wow. actually. Well, go community. I mean, go community. See what people come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I think by the time this is published, you got to go back and look and see where it's going because this is crazy new. Yeah. But very interesting. I thought so too. Well, anyway, that's what I got, Richard. Who's talking to us today? 
Uh, grabbed a comment off a show 1730, which we recorded with one Daniel Roth just a few months back in March of 2021, talking a bit about this thing called .NET 6. Maybe you heard of it. <laughs> uh, and he got a few good comments, and some of which that Dan responded to directly. I wanted to take on this comment from uh, Brent Manners, and he was on the topic of long-term support of LTS. Every two years, we get an LTS version of .NET. In practice, that means that any new project will need updating in as little as a year's time. I mean, if I build something in 3.1 just mm-hmm. before 6 was released, or maybe up to three years' time, I could see myself having to say to the business, I've used the long-term service version, so we won't have to update this for a year. But that's not really long-term in, in my book. I understand the push to keep software up to date to help with security, but the pace of change seems to be accelerating and not just in the .NET world. At some point, are we going to say this is too fast or that we're going to spend all our time updating existing software rather than building new software? Hmm. Yeah, that is a great question. And and I I do, we do sometimes hear similar feedback from, from other customers that, wow, like, you know, things are moving too fast for for us to keep up with like can can we some we sometimes hear people asking us to, to slow down like don't don't yeah. do as much because i i can't can't keep up mm. well and and the only case that i've seen slow down is windows is now saying an annual update ah. where they try to do quarterly they're actually dialing it back dialing back a little bit keeping things a little bit more stable for some folks i mean mm. i mean that was the goal of the lts releases was to be slower to give something that you could just build on and know that you had a few years on this thing and mm-hmm. you didn't have to shift around or, you know, take in new, new versions that might potentially bring in behavior changes, breaking changes, those types right. of things. Yeah. Um, so it shouldn't be every year though, right? Like it's the, it's every other release that we do an LTS release. And then we give you a year buffer after that. Right. So in theory, it's three years, but if you're only going to use LTS releases and you're a year into an LTS release, when you implement you could easily implement almost on top of it expiring or, or only end up with only a year. If your implementation schedule yeah. goes that long, like for a full Takes full that year. long. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, I think I would take some comfort, and I, 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 I believe this is true, and I mean, you know, please tell us if you're finding that it's not, that particularly as .NET versions, the, the .NET Core train, like it used to be .NET Core 3.1, and now it's just yeah. .NET. We, mm, we've yeah. merged that branch into some in some sense. Um, but as that train gets more and more widely um, adopted, like we have, you know, on the order of millions of developers now using that, that yeah, the, mm-hmm. the train. <laughs> Carl's got Sorry. his train. train <laughs> the uh, Blazer train guy just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> just put my blazer train hat on <laughs> sorry you can't see us that um the, the compatibility bar also goes up as well yes because if even if you do a teeny tiny little breaking change that you're like uh, almost surely almost no one is going to be impacted by this mm. well if you have two three four million developers and you're only breaking like 0.1 percent of them you still have got like potentially thousands of developers, I'm probably doing my math wrong, but lots of developers Mm -hmm. that uh, will complain and be upset that you broke them. So we have to keep cranking that compat bar up as .NET becomes more successful. I I love to tell the devs that if if you're not allowed to make breaking changes because of compat concerns, you should consider that the badge of success. You have now made it. It's so much easier when nobody cares. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You can just break things and like, well, you only broke three people. So yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, exactly. But, and also, I mean, one of the big things I saw in .NET 6 was the speed boost. Like, it's a very, very fast version of .NET, yeah. which speaks to this other idea, which is, like, you, if that software is maintainable, then it should be running the latest versions of .NET. You could go with the LTS releases. That's fair. The question is, how fragile is an update? And it seems to be less and less fragile. The uh, the other thing that I'm noticing is that you've got the folks that kind of want their whole organization on one version of .NET, and so and and I almost they they still haven't bought into side by side execution. They're they're afraid of that because they may have been burned. There have been problems in the past, and then that's very hard to sustain because it does mean rolling up. You know, if you've got a huge body of apps that were all running three one, and now you're talking about shifting them all to six. Like that, it, just the compile times alone could be non-trivial, much less what do you do with breaks? There's, there's a little work. Well, I, I still hope it's not too much. Like I hope it's fair. It should be you update 
the target framework moniker, you know, right. Netcore 3.1 to Net 6. And it should just work for the most part. I mean, yes. Package references, you have to deal with that. And you, you have to build, you have to deploy and all those things and deploy the, the new version into your environment. So I'm not, not going to say there's no work there. And hopefully you... Uh, there are, of course, some breaking changes that do happen with every release. We're, we're trying to be very careful about what changes we make there mm-hmm. so that this upgrade experience really is as as smooth as possible because you want it to be like a like a boat that just keeps lifting you up, right? Like you, right, you, yeah. you move forward with the platform, the platform just gets faster and more com- uh, feature rich underneath you and you just accrue that value for free, basically, right. by having built on top of it. That is our goal. Um, and we do take those uh, compat decisions very seriously. I mean, I would also say it's not like an out-of-support LTS version bursts into flames on that day either. That is right? true. Right. The but biggest concern you've got is sometime in the future, there's going to be a security patch. It isn't going to show up on an out-of-support version. And that's a time when you're really going to need to upgrade. And they, and it's even going to be more frightening if that's something that that does turn into an in-the-wild exploit that your app is, could now participate in. But in this case, the performance benefits were so significant that, you know, I had a customer, I have a customer that went out and, and without my help, just decided to flip their big .NET 5 Blazor server application over to .NET 6. And they only found one problem, which was with, and it was a big application, like, you know, the list of packages is at least two or three screens long. And, uh yeah. And so the the only problem they had was with uh, file uploads in the way, you know, if you're trying to do a chunked upload and reading buffers into memory and then writing them out, that was corrupting the file. So we just had to rewrite that using copy to async with the file stream and then uh, doing a, a uh, an extension for the stream copy to that took a progress indicator. And that was it. But that was the only that was the only issue, and you know hmm. we're talking about a big project. Yeah, and nice. they they did it without me. They just said, "Yeah, we're just going to flip it. We'll see what happens." And there is the upgrade wizard, uh, the migration wizard. Like there's tools to help. Hey, Brett, obviously you kicked off a great conversation here. Thank you so much for your contribution and your comment. And a copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment on the show and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. Definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Hot Reloaded, of course. Yeah. Ha ha. See what I did there? Yes. Okay, so let me formally introduce Daniel Roth. He's Principal Program Manager on the ASP.NET team at Microsoft, specifically working on .NET web development with Blazor. He's Mr. Blazor. Mm. I call him Mr. Blazor. Hey, Dan. How you doing? It's great to be here. Yeah, welcome back. I uh, devoured your content on .NET Conf. It was great. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't hear Richard telling stories in the background while you were doing that stuff because he was in the room, apparently. I right. was in a bunch of rooms. I was not in the room with Mr. Roth. Oh, okay. Um, I did. I did not make it over to those studios. I hung at Channel Nine. Okay. Primarily, so you saw me at Code Party and things like that. I kind of missed being in Channel Nine. I have to admit, I like totally that, agree. That was sort of our our home base for .NET yeah. Comp. We upgraded this year a little bit to these these other studios that we have at Microsoft, and it looked great. But it didn't feel like home. Yeah, but they, they and they're very nice studios. Like they, they're television studios. No two ways about it. You know, we've talked about this when we were doing road trips back in the day. There was one of the trips was so large that actually hiring the big pro coach with the professional drivers and we could stay on that and not stay in hotels. Like economically, it made sense, but it felt wrong. Right. Like, .NET Rocks is a kind of. It's an RV show. Yeah. We rent an <laughs> RV from some nice people in a, in, a, in a little town in California where we're going to abuse the RV in a way they can't imagine. But don't worry. <laughs> we'll pay for it. And we slap <laughs> decals all over the side of it and, you know, get a friend to drive. Like, that's who we are. Right. And yeah. so I totally get what you're saying, uh, Daniel, that, that .NET Conf always had an indie feel. And this one was really polished. However, a long way. Yeah. Even though the look and the sound and everything was polished, you guys were just so human and so good at uh, communicating what you needed to communicate without being pretentious and without talking down to people and without going over their head and being a particularly extra goofy. Like I thought it was just perfect, the content. 
Well, thank you. I mean, we, we do try to keep it keep it real. That's actually a, a very deliberate decision. I remember when we, we showed up at that fancy new studio for .NET Comp, and they, at that studio, were very used to having, like, everything's pre-recorded, and there's, like, you know, people ghosting the demos behind the scene in case there's ever any issues. And we were like, no, no, we're just going to do it live. Yeah, we're just going to do it for real. And they're like, what? <laughs> and like, yeah, just live. <laughs> it's great. It's just it how was. we've always done it. Yeah, fantastic. That's not necessarily what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I w- my setup for this was really the, I mean, you have been on the Blazor train, the Blazor ride, since the very beginning, pretty much. I mean, it's not like you were not necessarily in the room with Sanderson at NDC, but shortly thereafter, you've oh, been yeah. al- along it. And in some ways, Steve is off doing other things now in a lot of respects. But well, uh, I, I, uh, I, I actually, I had been talking with Steve even before the uh, that, that that NDC demo in 2017, right. where he yeah, unveiled right. the Blazer Baby uh, to, to the world. Yeah. Um, we had been talking about front end web development and what role.net could play in that space. Um, at the time WebAssembly was, I think either hadn't even existed yet, or maybe had just been announced as a, as a potential technology that would come to browsers. We, we had been talking about what we could do there. And, uh, Steve's demo really then got the ball moving, really opened people's eyes about what could be possible with running. Oh yeah inside microsoft and out like that as a witness to all of that was like seeing the microsoft yeah. people shocked oh, yeah. to the david fowlers yeah. of the world just this sort of like yeah. and it took a little time it's even even with that initial impression uh we spent you know a good year year and a half doing experiments doing you know talking to customers showing the the concept iterating on the concept before it finally became something that we thought we could move out of the experimental phase, which is a phase we use to sort of take an idea that we haven't committed to yet. Like we're, we're, we're not sure if this is going to be a product yet. It's not even, right. not even beta or alpha. It's just an experiment moving blazer out of that experimental phase into um, something that we actually thought was could, could become a, a, a real thing. You know, it took, took a good, good while, but uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome to be here now at .NET six, which is a, you know, an LTS release, long-term support release. And it has both Blazor Server, Blazor WebAssembly in the box. They've they've been multiple pre-releases before this one, and they are here now to be used and supported. And uh, it's awesome to see what people are now building with it. I I don't know if I missed this during .NET Conf, but I found it out because I was so curious if you had done this. Um, But now in a WebAssembly application in .NET 6, you can debug inside you can put breakpoints inside the uh life cycle overrides uninitialized on parameter set all of those things we couldn't do that on the very first load um if you skip to another page and then came back you'd get them you'd get them yeah but on mm-hmm. the very first load you couldn't put a breakpoint you couldn't debug and now you can Bl- debugging in blazor WebAssembly has always been uh a, a, a tricky business because you have your dotnet runtime Running in on WebAssembly on top of a JavaScript runtime that's running right. in a separate process in a browser that's in a sandbox. Yeah. Like there's yeah. a lot of reasons why this is going to be hard. How can you even talk to that to that process? Um, normally, when we do like remote debugging with .NET, it's all done with the standard .NET debug, debugger and remote debugging protocols. Yeah, but with a browser, you can't really do that. Um, so we actually tunnel .NET debugging through the JavaScript debugging protocol, wow. which has some benefits. It means you can not only hit breakpoints in your .NET code, you can also step through any JavaScript interop code that you're you're dealing with in your application, which is mm. great. But it's been tricky to get right. And yeah, in early releases, you could there were some timing issues where uh, breakpoints didn't get uh, sort of set up quick enough right. before they had already been executed, so you wouldn't see them when you were debugging. We did some work in .NET 6 to clean that up so that things are delayed properly so you can hit a breakpoint even at those at those early stages in the uh, app's lifecycle. Yeah, that's nice. And that's just in debug mode. In release mode, this isn't going to cause any performance issues or anything. It's just debug Oh, yeah. Right? No, none of, none of that stuff yeah. is involved in release mode at all. It's great. And actually, in .NET 6, with the new, um, we have this new tool chain, the .NET WebAssembly build tools that we can use to manipulate the runtime itself in all sorts of interesting ways. So the, the runtime's a, a chunk of WebAssembly. In .NET 6, we can actually strip out anything in that runtime that 
you're not using in your application. Like mm -hmm. if you enable invariant globalization, well, you don't need all the globalization features that the .NET runtime normally provides. So we can strip those out at, at build time before you even deploy. Uh, debug, any sort of debugging features also can get stripped out of the runtime. So the code is not even there which helps reduce the size of your application quite dramatically. I thought that was done with the linker already. The linker is a little different. The linker will handle uh, managed code, like your, your DLLs, your .NET IL code. The linker knows how to analyze that code and strip out unused stuff. But prior to .NET 6, the .NET.WASM file, the WebAssembly file, the runtime, yeah. that was a fixed quantity. It was just right. a thing that you always had to download, and it was always exactly the same size. In .NET 6, that's no longer the case. We can relink the runtime itself, the WebAssembly code, to remove stuff. And so, that makes things much smaller. You can get a, a Blazor WebAssembly app. Uh, a minimum Blazor WebAssembly app can now be like, you know, just slightly over a megabyte, which is about wow. a 40% reduction over hmm. what we had in .NET 5. So that explains why when I installed that tool, the, that tool chain, the workload, the, I saw mscripten coming over. Yes. And scripten is the the essentially the wasm compiler right yep we use yeah. that tool chain to allow us to introspect the WebAssembly code and it potentially not only link stuff out but also link stuff in so if you have like native components um c code c plus plus code that you want to use <laughs> in a so browser cool. running on uh, yeah uh, running alongside your .NET code you can now link in that code to the runtime and have it included. That could be custom C code. It could be existing libraries. Like a one, one demo we've shown is um, using Skia, which is a uh, native graphics library. It was built by, by Google. Um, there's a nice C-sharp wrapper around it called Skia-sharp that, that we maintain. You can now take Skia-sharp as a .NET library, reference it from your Blazor WebAssembly app, and then the Skia native bits get linked into the runtime. So you get you know, wow. very fast graphics, native graphics rendering engine right there in the browser. I noticed that the Skia project is in mono. It's just interesting to remind ourselves that like this is mono still. Yeah, the runtime itself is still based on the the mono code base. Mm -hmm. um, and it's yeah, and I know sometimes people get hung up on that. It's like, wait a minute, is this really .NET? That's got it's got that mono thing. Oh no, it's really .NET. <laughs> it's really .NET. Like we don't we don't really think of these things as I mean, they're they're separate implementations, but mono really provides us the .NET runtime for a bunch of our primary workloads for blazor right. WebAssembly is one but also for like our mobile workloads right you're running on top of a mono based runtime on android or ios right and those are you know shipped supported uh, uh, parts and very important parts of the microsoft platform yeah both for xamarin and also for the new dotnet maui uh, based based stack and there's tons of uh cross sharing that now happens between you know, the CoreCLR-based runtime and the Mono-based runtime. And of course, all the core framework libraries on top have been unified as part of the one .NET vision for .NET 6. Right. Yeah. But that does mean you're synchronizing features between these different builds, too. That is true. We, I mean, you have to... If you, it's not, it's not that much different, though, in terms of, like, thinking about a different platform for, right. for the runtime. Like, when we took... Course, uh, course, to Linux and to Mac. Right. You know, we had to sync the features uh, that we had on Windows onto those mm -hmm. platforms, and yeah, that that took work. When you take it to um, to Android and iOS, that that you can think of that work as effectively being the mono implementation. Right. And across all of those, we need to have a common set of uh, capabilities, like Hot Reload being one of those. And admittedly, this is an area where there's still a little bit of a of a delta. Oh, yeah. Um, for CLRs, hot re reload capabilities are a little bit more complete right now than the Mono's uh, hot reload capabilities. So like when you hot reload in a Blazor WebAssembly app, there are certain things that would have worked fine, like on Blazor Server or an MVC app, but because Mono's hot reload capabilities are still being um, brought up, um, they're not they're not there yet. But those are things that we're working on in future. Releases. It reminds me of something I want to ask you about hot reload. And that is, is it, and, and I, I think I get it, but might not be clear that when you're going to run your application in Visual Studio, you can either run with a run button, which is debug and run, or you can run without debugging and use hot reload. But you can't use hot reload if you're debugging. Is that right? Specifically, 
for Blazor WebAssembly. That was a it was an unfortunate uh, gap that we had in the .NET 6 release. That will get addressed. We will f- um, add support for doing hot reload with Blazor WebAssembly while you're debugging. Wow. Uh, all the other app workloads, um, for the most part, uh, for web, certainly, we support both. You can be running with a debugger or running without, and you can hot reload in either right. case. Okay. Um, for Maui, Maui is the opposite. Like Maui right. will ha- has hot reload support right now when you're running with the debugger. <laughs> But not when you're doing like a control F5. So it's a kind of a, it's a right. bit of a <laughs> messy situation for Blazor WebAssembly. Though I think in fairly short order we expect to have that uh, that uh, patched up. And I think it's a a VS. I mean, it's a VS feature to 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 do hot reload with the debugger. And so I think it's either 17.1 or 17.2 where we expect that to come online. So early next year. There's another feature that I saw you demonstrate, which was great, is uh, hot reload with with CSS files. Yeah, that's super. And it's as you type, like as you're typing things, it will actually check to see if it's syntactically valid. If it is, it'll just throw it into the to the DOM for you. So it's very uh, agile and lightweight. It's actually based on a a, a pre existing feature. If, if you've heard of browser link in uh, mm-hmm. Visual Studio, the hot reload for CSS is actually based on that infrastructure. It's just made a little bit more seamless and, and coherent. Is there anything that you need to do to get that to work, or is there any situation in which it won't work? It should. Always work. There is a difference when it's a top-level CSS file or if it's a component or page-specific CSS file. So if you have a normal CSS file just sitting in your www root folder, mm-hmm. it should just work, and it should work as you type. If you have a component or a page or view-specific CSS file, so .razor.css or .cshtml.css, those files actually get processed as part of the build. And so you actually have to you have to you just have to save those files for the changes to to be hot reload. They yeah. won't happen as your type, but both should work fine. That's cool because the browser itself is used to render re-rendering CSS with changes anyway. Like the the just the the magic is is stuffing it into the into the browser's context so that it sees the new one. That is exactly what we do. We put a little yeah. piece of code in the browser that knows how to take those CSS deltas and apply them to the to the live DOM for you. Right, and then the re-render happens. Because a Blazor application obviously is not just regular HTML. It's all managed by, mm-hmm. uh, well, Blazor Server anyway. All the UI is managed by the, the Blazor runtime. Yeah, It's managed by the runtime, but the DOM is still there. Like the runtime is trying its best to keep track of the state of the DOM yeah, so that it can do right. all that fancy diffing. Like when yep. you re-render okay. a component, the runtime will figure out what changed and then apply those deltas to the running DOM. And as long as Blazor works great, as long as the, the DOM and what Blazor thinks is in the DOM are in sync. Right. Um, this yeah. is a, a sort of a classic problem that like particularly a lot of early Blazor devs hit where they would try to write some JavaScript that would go and mess with the DOM underneath uh, without Blazor knowing. And then Blazor right. didn't, we had an incorrect right. idea of what was in the DOM, Don't and then do rendering could do some some weird stuff. Right? Yeah, that's Blazor is actually keeping track of the DOM. So the the CSS hot reload works just fine with with Blazor. It'll just patch up the the DOM and should should be good. It's very cool. Let's take a break. This is a good point, I think. So uh, mm-hmm. stand by for this very important message. You know, time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software, and our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customers peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage-based plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. This is my friend Richard Campbell. Howdy. And uh, he is not underwater, believe it or not. His office is not flooded. No, not at the moment. And uh, more on that later. <laughs> Those storms we had in November were very much like the storms that flooded my basement in 2015. Like, 
Same kind of things. Like so much rain in such a short period of time, drainage couldn't keep up. Well, we're talking to Daniel Roth about Blazor and .NET 6. And uh, before we jump into Fluent uh, UI components, which I think is fascinating, let's talk about quickly rendering components from JavaScript. So I haven't done this because I'm not an Angular developer. I've never, I did, I did Angular like once, right? But, um, you know, the whole idea is that if you have an Angular application and you want to, like, render a Blazor component inside your Angular application, uh, guess you can do that now? Yes, you can. And the first question is, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we we get this um, concern a lot from, from customers that... Um, they love that they'll get really excited about Blazor and they'll be like, Oh man, I, I'm a .NET dev. I do .NET on the back end. Mm -hmm. I love this concept of Blazor, but I already have yeah. a bunch of Angular or React code or front end JavaScript code that we have and we have to continue to maintain that. Right. How do I now balance that with the fact that I want to write Blazor code? I don't, I don't want to rewrite all my Angular and React code in, in Blazor. Well, with this feature, you can now just start rendering Blazor components from within your existing Angular or React app and keep your existing investment and start building out new functionality using Blazor components. So that's that's one option. You could even start whittling away at your JavaScript code if you wanted to do a migration. You could, you know, piecewise start moving your Angular app over to Blazor if that's something you wanted to to, to do. And the bindings don't interfere with each other. No, like we 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 have uh, working examples of how you can. I, I should clarify one thing. Like the the feature that we added mm. is very actually low level. Like we gave you a, a a capability to add Blazor components at runtime using JavaScript and have them have them render. Okay, there's no mm -hmm. um, built into the framework itself, like into .NET six. There's no out of the box support for then like turning that into an Angular component yeah. and dealing with the Angular bindings. That does become a bit of an exercise for the user. Mm. We did put out some samples um, on how to on ways that you can approach this. We have one sample app that's actually pretty cool that will code gen Angular components for your Blazor components or code gen React components for your Blazor components so that you can then use them as if they're Angular or React components. Hmm. And that's just a code gen model. It's not it's not a shipped feature, it's just a sample of a of something that you can do. With the uh, with the stack, yeah, it's just another thing where you know the lines between JavaScript and C sharp are just blurring in all sorts of directions, as yeah. you know, as evidenced by the uh, better known framework here. You know this mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. uh, .NET JS thing. It just it just it's happening. The other approach you can do is we do have uh, an experimental package, like an actual library that will take a Blazor component and turn it into a standards based custom element. Um, so the custom elements are an HTML thing, right? You can usually you define them using JavaScript. Yeah. In Blazor, we now have an experimental way that can take a Blazor component, and in C Sharp, you can now build a custom element. And those those custom elements can then be built, uh, can be used by anything. They can be used by React. It can be used by Angular or any any front end uh, framework you want because it's just a standard HTML custom element. That's something that we're um, looking at and uh, to get feedback on to see if people like the approach that we use in that custom elements package. And if it's looking good, um, we'll probably productize that in the, the .NET 7 timeframe. Wow. Okay. But it does speak to this ongoing development cycle. There's still lots more features to build, right? Software just never seems to stop. There always seems <laughs> to be more. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. How many things were you working on for Blazor that didn't make it into .NET 6 too, right? I mean, I guess it's an ongoing cycle, but it's like, you know, there's, Maui obviously got pushed back because it's such a big bite. but there's always got to be a point where you sort of assess, this is going to make it into this version. This is going to be pushed to later. I, yeah, I, absolutely. Like, yeah, nothing, not everything makes it in. We do end up sometimes having to cut features, mm -hmm. push features out to a, to a future release. Um, I'm just looking, like we had a, uh, on GitHub, we actually published a, a roadmap for ASP.NET Core for the .NET 6 wave. And this was part of a broader effort across .NET 6 to be as transparent as we could about our plans and themes for that release. There was this themes right. of .NET site that you could go to and browse for the whole the whole platform, what we were working on, the areas that we were investing. For ASP.NET Core, the things that we didn't make into to .NET 6, like we had thought maybe we would ship a, an out-of-the-box drag-and-drop feature for Blazor so you didn't have to do any JavaScript interop to make that work. Wow, uh, that ended up getting pushed out. There was some stuff for Blazor Server that we were looking at. Um, and, 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 and just to be clear, you're not telling us any secrets. Like all of this is in the repository. You can see you, you guys are working on it. 
we're open source. Like <laughs> yeah. all our issues, we, we don't have like a, I mean, the only, I think only secret issues we ever keep are issues that are security bugs that we want to right. avoid the like zero day right. exposure. Don't make your own zero day. Yeah. Right. Put zero day yourself. <laughs> hey, we have this vulnerability. And in fact, it's, 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 this applies to the community as well. Like if you do think you found a, a severe security bug in the .NET platform, um, when you file, when you go to GitHub to file the bug, there should be a warning thing there that says, this, this is a security issue. Please don't just post it here publicly on GitHub. Yeah. Like, let us know privately so that we don't zero day the whole, the whole community. There's a, there's a process for that to try and keep people safe. Like we want to right. get the That's fix right. out, um, before the, the security vulnerability gets, gets known. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is all public. You can find this issue on GitHub. It's issue 27883. If you want to look at the roadmap issue for uh, .NET 6 and the bottom, there's this list of stuff that got cut and things that we just ran out of time to do. And we'll Mm. look at those things. Some of them we ran out of time. Some of them we decided, you know, maybe maybe this isn't something we actually want to do. Uh, But we will look at through this list again as we start. uh, Right now, we're in the middle of our .NET 7 planning. Love it. And and, and again, so the the fact that there's the roadmap, comment on it. Because you guys are working here, right? That's actually what's going on. Yeah, go to the actually go to the roadmap. Look at the issues because it's mostly just like a big long list of uh, of issues for the issues that you care about that didn't get done. Go and give them a thumbs up. Give them a plus one, and yeah. that's a signal that we use to gauge how excited and enthusiastic the community is about mm. those issues. Mm. What you mean? I don't have to. I don't have to get a petition together. We don't have to protest. <laughs> you just count our thumbs up. How strange! We we do our best to try and uh, keep our customers happy. We don't always succeed. We make some 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 missteps and mistakes, but we do. Oh, try. sure. All right. Let's talk about this huge library of Fluent UI controls that you've added to Blazor. First of all, Fluent UI. Let's let's rewind that. What is that? So that's a Microsoft design system for building UI that will be consistent with our, you know, Microsoft set of products, Windows, Office, Teams. You want to build something that kind of looks like that. Fluent is the design system that we've uh, had available for a while. And there's a you know website where you can find uh, pre-built components for a variety of UI stacks. Like there have been a, a bunch of React components that have been there for a while. Uh, React is heavily used right. in, uh, in internally at Microsoft in addition to .NET. Um, and now we have Blazor Fluent UI components that that you can use. These components are interesting because they're actually, we, we were talking before about custom elements. This is kind of the reverse. So the Fluent hmm. UI team had already started investing in Fluent UI web components, Fluent UI custom elements that you could use in any front-end stack, React, Vue, Angular, and so forth. And what they did is they just built a thin Blazor shell, a thin Blazor wrapper yeah. around those uh, Fluent UI web components to provide a first-class Blazor experience. Um, those have been in preview for a little while, but they're now at 1.0 as a, as a first GA stable release, and they're available for anyone to use in any Blazor app. Um, and they support the new Windows 11 uh, visuals. So if you like the, the rounded corners and all that stuff, yeah. you can get that. Um, they actually have a really cool design system framework underneath those um, web components uh, based on a framework called Fast. Um, um, Rob Eisenberg, uh, who has a long history of building all sorts of interesting stuff in the, oh, yeah. in the web world, Aurelia, he's done a bunch of cool stuff at Microsoft. He um, and his team have built this built the Fast framework as a very flexible way to, you can basically reconfigure it to look like different stuff. Like you can make it look like a Mac, you can make mm-hmm. it look like Windows, you can make it look like Teams, and it's just a bunch of parameters that you can reconfigure to give it that look. Um, so that sits underneath all of this. So your Blazor Fluent UI web components can then take on those slight different variants of the Fluent UI design system. Yeah, that's really cool. We haven't had Rob on in forever. We He's haven't. always worked on cool things. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we haven't. Um, so that that's really cool. And how many controls did you say there were? Like 40? Like 40 plus 40 of 50? them. There's yeah. quite wow. a few. Yeah, they're all ready to go. They can be used from, I mean, you could always, always have used the Fluent UI web components already. Like they were right. there, you could use them. The nice thing about the Blazor shells is they give you that, you know, strongly typed program model, you know, IntelliSense over all the uh, parameters and such. So it's it's got that uh, C sharp .NET feel to it when you're when you're using them, which is pretty cool. All right, should we talk about uh, .NET Maui Blazor apps? Sure. 
one of my favorite topics. Yeah. We extend beyond the web right. to native and uh, mobile and desktop. Yeah. So, so I got to tell you that I did a .NET show uh, where I created uh, two apps at the same time, Maui apps, one with XAML and one with Blazor. And uh, just try to cr- just try to change the background color of a button in XAML. It seems like such a easy thing, really, but the way that the platforms implement background colors of buttons is different on every platform. And since uh, Maui XAML is writing a native application, you look in the task manager. There's one executable, then it has to have that uh, those you know. What do they call them? Pragma kind of statements, right? Am I saying that right? Where you have the if you know Android, then do this. Otherwise, if Mac, do this or whatever, or Windows. So you have to have the, these uh, statements in there to do things differently. Whereas in Blazor, you're creating a, a hybrid application. Really, you have a native shell, and then you've got these web views that the web browser is essentially your cross-platform platform, right? So CSS works the same on Linux as it does and Windows and Mac and Android. So you just change some CSS and boom, you're done. This is why we call these hybrid apps. I, call, I refer to this pattern as Blazor hybrid, mm, where you're right. using native client technology, like an Android app, an iOS app, yeah. but combined with the web platform, HTML, CSS, and in this case, C-sharp instead of JavaScript. When you take those two things together, yeah. it enables you to build native experiences that can do more than what you normally could do with the web platform, mm. but leveraging web technologies. And by the way, the performance of each was a draw. There wasn't any. I mean, I basically did, what did I do? I, I went into a tight loop you know, a million times or something like that and timed it. Mm. And it was pretty much a draw on both sides. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's expected because the unlike with Blazor WebAssembly, where we're trying to run .NET code on this WebAssembly-based runtime in the uh, hybrid model, and like a .NET Maui app, your .NET code is running right there on the machine in the normal native runtime. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not it's not a separate runtime experience for that .NET code. We're not using WebAssembly at all. It's just normal .NET code being run in the normal way, along with all the other .NET code in that application. Mm-hmm. The UI stacks are different. Like if you're doing XAML, then you're using whatever the native controls are for the underlying platform. Yeah. So they'll have the performance characteristics of, and the features of those controls. Uh, with Blazor, with Blazor in .NET Maui, you're using the web platform on top of that native platform. And so whatever the characteristics are of doing HTML and CSS, that's what you'll see for the UI rendering there. And both of them, for the most part, have been heavily tuned and optimized. Like whether the web platform and all the different platforms and the native platform itself, they both probably have received quite a bit of attention. So I would not surprise you. You should expect to see good performance either way. Well, and the thing about Blazor is you don't have to use value converters. Yay! <laughs> so the UI model is different. Yay! I mean, this is, I view this as like, what do you know and what do you love? Right. right? Like, if you're a XAML dev yeah. and you love that you've been doing XAML for forever, you're going to probably love the .NET MAUI XAML. That's right. Model, That's right? what you do. We were talking to if Billy Hollis dev, just a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, man, I'm just, I live and breathe XAML. I'm very good at it. I know exactly what I'm doing. If it takes me three hours to do something that takes you a half an hour, good on you. I don't care. I just know I'm going to do it the right way for my customers. That's what they want. So yep, yep. whatever. That's good. I think I think another interesting trade-off also is um, like in the web, you're, you're, you're going to use the web platform and whatever the web platform provides as sort of a generic thing. With with the XAML model, you're really doing something different. You're, you're, yeah. you're leveraging the native, the stack. native stack. So if the if the native stack happens to have a control that does a whole bunch of things that in HTML, yeah, you can do it, but you'll have to like build it like to get that UI experience to, to mimic that iOS fancy widget, whatever yep, it is. Yep. Then you you have that trade-off as well. Like when we we actually did this exercise at .NET Conf where we built um, a this .NET podcast app yeah. with all our favorite .NET I podcasts. I saw it. One was cur- curiously missing, however. Oh, I thought I'm 99 percent sure that you guys were there. Okay, I'm maybe, sorry if I didn't maybe, maybe it wasn't in top three. Maybe that's it. It was definitely there. 
Um, the, uh, the, we built two versions of it. We built a XAML version, yeah. like it was all native controls. And we built a, a Blazor version, which was just a single Blazor web view right, control right. with all HTML and CSS. And you could tell that in some cases there was more code in the HTML mm-hmm. and in some cases there was weird stuff in the, in the, the XAML. Yep. And that was the trade-offs of those two different patterns. Yeah. Um, what's even great is that we actually had a third version, which was this sort of mix of the two where we had oh. most of it was XAML. And then we rolled in a feature that was uh, just a Blazor component that we wanted to throw in on a particular page. So you could add as much Blazor or as much native controls as you wanted. Mm, nice. That's really cool. But it, it also speaks to this reality that you don't have, there's not one way to do this stuff. And that you don't have, the idea of starting an app over again is kind of obsolete. If you've been building, you know, in the stack of your choice, web forms, React, Angular, so forth, and now you want you want some things that Blazor does for you, just add it. Yeah. Now, we didn't even mention that the the Blazor WebView control idea, like this Blazor hybrid pattern, it's not specific to, to Maui. Uh, we have Blazor WebView controls that we're also uh, working on and shipping for WinForms apps. If you want to add a Blazor to your Windows Forms application wow. and WPF. Wow. Wow, cool. And I well, haven't done... Uh, we've Mau- been talking for a while about Blazor being the future of WebForms because WebForms is not coming, right? Like it's too bound to IIS and the, and, the, and the Windows stack. So, you know, if you guys start building WebView control for WebForms, that's our bridge for win forms <laughs> for win forms not for web forms yeah, yeah we're talking about native client apps right so like if you okay. have a native desktop windows forms application and you want to start modernizing it like leveraging web technologies we give you a blazor web view control that you can put in a windows form application and start adding ui and functionality using the blazor ecosystem using uh, web development skills and at some point you want to like even flip that to be a Maui app. Now you have a bunch of UI that just transfers over directly because the oh, exact same okay. laser controls will run in both. They don't, they don't change. Exactly the opposite of what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, web forms is a different thing. Yeah, web forms. Yeah. We don't, we don't have any plans Viking to bring web okay. forms to, to .NET 7 or 8 or future. No. Blazor is, is kind of similar, I would say. Like it's, it's got, uh, an event driven, you know, control or a component based UI ma- model. I, I don't want to. Yeah, it's all right. It's certainly not the same thing. And yeah. I know people who, are, who love web forms, like I'm sure they're, oh, yeah. they wish we would bring it forward. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's no current. Yeah. Well, or at least give us a migration path. Well, and there is one. Um, Jeff Fritz and friends has that whole web forms, uh, to Blazor migration kit. Essentially, yeah. There's a bunch of uh, Blazor components that mimic the web forms yeah. uh, controls that were out of the box. Yep. Um, we're doing. We actually are looking uh, quite a bit at this space for .NET seven. Um, one of the things that David Fowler, you mentioned him earlier. He's one of he's mm-hmm. a architect on the .NET team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been spending a lot of time thinking about this space, and he's done some work looking at how we can allow you to take the same app and sort of have both your ASP.NET code and then ASP.NET core code sort of living side by side in some sense. So you can migrate piecemeal. Like one of the big issues with migration and modernization is the conundrum of, well, if I rewrite everything, Mm -hmm. does that mean I'm not delivering anything for my existing app for like however long it takes me to to rewrite? Like I got to keep maintaining the old app. And if I'm still adding stuff to the old app while I'm trying to to modernize, then I'm in this race, like who can go faster? I'm always trailing behind potentially on the new app. Well, and, and, and always the problem with dead drops, right? It's like one day everybody has to cut across. And that's just like, that's not acceptable in any size organization, really. So enabling people to mix a little bit where you can start yeah. like, you know, a page or, you know, a single URL of your app can now start being .NET 7, ASP.NET Core, and you can start whittling away at it that way. Yeah. Is one, one strategy that we're, we're looking at trying to. Yeah. Handle. And that's super important, right? That, that then the new features are only built in the new way and the old stuff continues to work. And then you, you know, in each sprint, we dock one old feature and migrate it. And, and maybe two years down the path, eventually it's like, Hey, there's no ASP.NET uh, web forms code left. Mm. But it, but at no point did you force people to change, to, you know, take their, take their, move their bowl. Like you kept moving things along. The lot, the app continued to grow and evolve. What else, what else are you guys thinking about for .NET 7 that you can tell us without having to kill well, us? We're looking at uh, a, a number of things. Um, I mean, I, uh, for the WebAssembly and for, well, Blazor space, there's, there's a couple of WebAssembly uh, capabilities that, 
we still are missing that I think we'll, we'll be looking at adding. Um, one is related to our, we, in, in .NET 6, we added support for ahead of time compilation, right. where you can take all of your .NET code, or at least most of it, and pre-compile it into WebAssembly to get much better runtime performance. Um, right. Normally, Blazor WebAssembly apps are interpreted, like the runtime is, a, is an IL interpreter. Mm -hmm. There's no JIT that you can really have on WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. By ahead of time compiling it, you get significantly better uh, runtime performance. But the downside is you also get a bloat. Like the equivalent mm -hmm. WebAssembly code for the .NET IL tends to require mo more code because the .NET IL has all sorts of semantics that have to be then mimicked in, in WebAssembly. Right. So you get like a, a two to one increase in download size for the app. Mm -hmm. we, so we made we made apps smaller in .NET six, but then when you AOT them, they get bigger. So so it's kind of this you know yeah, type it's of, a smaller off. bigger type of thing. Uh, your starting point smaller, but then you, if you AOT it, you get bigger again. To try and mitigate that, um, we've wanted to do this have like more of a mixed mode ahead of time uh, compilation pattern where you can say these are the code paths that are really hot. I just want to AOT those parts, like maybe just this one assembly mm. or just this one piece. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky problem because now you have code sort of diving into ahead of time compiled code and then being interpreted in other paths. And that sort of going back and forth is a tricky runtime problem. But in .NET 7, we're hoping to, to deliver um, that capability as a first class feature. So you can get both optimized for download size and for runtime performance at the same time. Um, that's one. Okay. Another is uh, multi-threading. Um, we've long wanted to support multi-threading in Blazor WebAssembly applications, but you're limited by what the browser can do. Uh, for a brief window, there was this period where browsers had the capabilities we needed to do multi-threading support. There was this shared mm -hmm. array buffer feature that we could use, and we were going to do it. And then I forget the names of the security vulnerabilities. There were a couple of security vulnerabilities that, that came out that basically we, uh, caused the browsers to have to remove this feature or basically turn it off while they put mitigations in place. Um, so we've been in a sort of a holding pattern, waiting for the browsers to re-enable those features in a safe way that we can use. The last holdout is uh, our good friend, Apple, on Safari. We're waiting for, I think they now have it. Dun, uh, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> in In uh, experimental form, and we're just waiting to see if they're going to enable it. We may decide to do um, a two runtime approach in .NET 7 if, if, if they don't have it yet. Because even, even if they add it, there's still the problem of, well, what do you do about older browsers that right. still don't have the feature? We may give you a runtime that can do multi-threading. Mm -hmm. And if you know your, your clients are on browsers that support multi-threading, then you can go ahead and use it and you're good. Um, and then for older browsers or browsers that haven't yet enabled the capability, you you'll, you could use the other runtime that doesn't do uh, multi-threading. We may do something like that. We're hoping to get, have a story at least around multi-threading in the .NET 7 okay. timeframe. Oh, you're talking about Spectre and Meltdown. Yes. Thank yes. you. Yes. Which was actually a vulnerability in, in Intel processors. Yeah. But it's not something that a browser could necessarily detect. Those are mine and my brother's CB handles. Spectre and Meltdown. In the 70s. <laughs> nice. Sorry. Well, I mean, you know, you talk, he, if you talk about the story arc of processor performance, like when Spectre and Meltdown showed up and they had to lock down a bunch of stuff, yeah. like literally everybody's compute costs went up. Yeah. You know, the newer processors don't have that problem, but it's going to take, you know, 10 years for those to cycle through. But interesting, I did not think about the fact that multi-threading on browsers is going to be imp impacted by a processor vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. That's really kind of cool. And weird. Lost some, some browser capabilities as a result. Yeah, it reminds me of that Rowhammer uh, hack or the Rowhammer um, vulnerability. Have you heard about this one? So I don't know. This yeah, one. so this is basically uh, where the physical world meets the digital world and they collide. Basically, what's what happens is the these uh, memory chips, when they're close together... If you do something like, you know, say two plus two in a tight loop, the the memory chip where that thing is gets really hot and it can get so hot that it can actually flip a bit next to it. And so this vulnerability was uh, a, a hack, basically, where somebody could get into a computer and, and manipulate it so that you could actually set bits next to, you know, pins next to the pin that you were heating up. Using temperature. Using temperature. Well, it's crazy. Yeah. We talked about it on security <laughs> this week. Patrick Hines, between Laflotte and me.
So uh, I want to say what's next, but you've pretty much covered it. Next is .NET mm-hmm. 7. .NET 7. I, 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 the other WebAssembly capability I would also um, say that we're looking at is um, we've, we've kind of married Blazor to the .NET and WebAssembly capability yeah. up until now. And right. that was mostly just because we were kind of greedy. Like we were trying to get a client.net story for web development out there. And so we kind of coupled those things together. I would a bit unnaturally, like we probably, ideally we wouldn't have done that. We did it pragmatically when we were uh, working on the release. To great success. But really what we want is for there to be a .net WebAssembly capability that's independent even of the Blazor UI framework. If you want right. to run .net code in a browser, you shouldn't have to have Blazor in the mix at all. There are ways to do that today, and people do do it. Like there's there's other there's other stacks yeah. that run on the same runtime that we run on, like Uno and OpenSilver. These are folks that are using the same .NET WebAssembly runtime that that we built, but using a completely different UI stack. We'd like to make that a more first class feature in in .NET seven, and even for scenarios where UI isn't even the goal. Like if you just have a .NET library that you want to leverage in the browser along with your JavaScript code. We'd like to enable you to do that. Yeah. And you're not even you're not even trying to draw pixels. You just want to call into a function or into a class. Right. Uh, that's something we also want to look at in the, the .NET 7 time. Um, also, I see on the list here .NET MAUI graphics controls in Blazor. Oh, yeah. I mean, the MAUI direction in general, I think, is just so exciting. Yeah. There's so much cool stuff. Like, So mid-next year, right, MAUI is supposed to ship. You know, Early Q2, I think, is what we said. Mm-hmm. And that's when the Blazor hybrid story in for both mobile and desktop will show up with, with .NET MAUI. And one of the really neat things that the Maui folks have been working on is, I mean, th- their goal is to abstract stuff across platform. UI controls, mm. allow your code to run everywhere. They've been working on a graphics abstraction for Maui, .NET Maui graphics, which allows you to just draw stuff. And then you can use that same logic, same drawing code on any of the platforms that Maui runs on, you know, a cross-platform huh. drawing abstraction. Maybe that'll make on my background that, color code work. Yeah, well, you could, you could, and in fact, I think they do some of that Sounds stuff, like right? They like, will, um, yeah. They uh, they sometimes add a little bit of drawing code on top of their cross-platform control abstractions mm-hmm. to like add some effects that maybe the platform doesn't support. Like, I think they do that stuff with shadows. It's kind of, it's kind oh, of interesting okay. the the tricks that they have to do to get that consistent experience. Cool. But they're also working on just custom controls, like ri- draw their own controls using the .NET MAUI graphics library. Yeah. So they have the .NET MAUI graphics controls, which then would be a consistent set of controls that could run you know, anywhere .NET MAUI runs. Right. And that could be mm-hmm. a way to bring MAUI to platforms that uh, it doesn't currently run on yet. Like you know, Linux is, a, is the obvious gap right, right. now. Yeah. Um, Linux is kind of a mixture of different UI stacks. You know, yes. Having a .NET MAUI graphics control library might be a really convenient way to do graphics on mm-hmm. Linux. Yeah, I might, and, something to actually bridge across the different UI stacks would be huge for Linux yeah. devs. Are you kidding? Yeah. You know, <laughs> to not have to build the KDE or new, like that's a big deal. Yeah. And then Blazor, we think, could potentially leverage that same graphics uh, investment as well. Like in, yeah. not just for MAUI, but also as think of it as a cross-platform graphics stack, even for web where if you wanted to draw custom controls on web that you could you could use those same controls there as well and really have a consistent UI story um, across native and and web. So that's that's an interesting direction. Yeah. Yeah, I think funny it still remains to be seen if how that will play out but uh, one of the comments I didn't read for this show was somebody asking, "Hey, when are we going to get XAML for web?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> didn't know you were going to tell me at the end of the show, "Oh, by the way, yeah, you're going to get Maui for web." <laughs> I, I I can't I'm not going to promise XAML for web, yeah, but, no. uh, but but this is an interesting direction that maybe that could could to take us Somewhat in that in that way. I mean, I know what people really are asking there is like, can you please make my WPF app just run in a browser for yeah. me by pushing a button? No plans to do that at this point, unfortunately. Right. Okay. Wow. That's a good place to leave it, I think. Daniel Rod. You, you knock us dead every time, Dan, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Now I understand why there's a Reddit page dedicated to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> don't go there. I, don't, I can confirm or deny the existence of no this such page. thing. Don't look for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thanks a lot. It's always great talking to you. And great congratulations on .NET 6. It looks amazing. I'm loving it. What can I say? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...